1: Welcome to the August edition of Signal, the podcast from the media net for Christians working in, around and with the media. I'm your host, James Poulter, and joined in the studio this month by my good friend, Mr. Sam Hales. Hello. And the wonderful Ruth Jackson.
3: Hello.
1: The wonderful Ruth Jackson, who has accomplished many things in the past few weeks, which we'll get into in just a moment. So exciting news about going up mountains. <laughs> um, uh, we've got the news review coming up in just a few moments, plus our recommendations. And today on the show, we've also got an interview interview with Mark Warburton, who's one of the senior producers at Songs of Praise, has been with the show for over 20 years, working at it when it was both in the BBC and now as it is out with an independent So we're going to be hearing more from him about how we are, you know, engaging with this whole topic of praise and worship in modern life. So all of that coming up on the show today. So into today, we have got some lovely friends back in the studio. Nice to see you both. And Ruth, nice to see that you have survived your trek up and down Mount Kilimanjaro. Yes, uh, so am I. Raising money for Youth for Christ. Uh, how did it go?
3: It was good. The first four days were really good. And um, so we did, we did the up and down the whole trek in six days. Most people do it in sort of seven, eight, nine. Um, so it was quite a short version, which meant that it was more difficult. Um, the final day, I genuinely, there wasn't a moment where I didn't think I was going to die. <laughs> so it was like, I'm doing the hand movements aware that no one could see. It was like a sheer, sheer base of a cliff, basically, mm. and um, minus 30 degrees, so ice everywhere, uh, and we didn't have crampons or anything, so you're literally clinging on for dear life.
1: Was that intentional, to go up with basically no well,
3: gear? Well, <laughs> um, our guides uh, sort of chatted to us beforehand, and they were like, you guys have got crampons, yeah? And we were like, "What's a crampon? No, they're like spikes in your shoes. Uh, well, okay. they're a bit different from spikes. You I can thought get that's spikes just something you that something
1: that I get off. if I stand too long on the train Sure, platform.
3: well, it's also that. Um, but when we said we didn't, they, were, they looked at us, and then they went, ah, kuna matata. And I was like, is it really, is it really, <laughs> really kuna Matata or are what? we going to die? Anyway, so.
4: That is hilarious. So, Come and, on, and Pumper, pitch- let's just run up this mountain. It's, so
3: it's pitch black as well when you make your final descent because if the sun is shining, then the snow starts to melt. So obviously that's really dangerous. So it's pitch black. We had a head torch. When I put my head torch on, literally all I could see was blood in the snow so wherever you look it's white and there's just splatters of blood and this Um, is
4: blood from other people who'd been there before yeah so you hear
3: all these horror stories about Everest where there are just dead bodies everywhere and I didn't see any dead bodies (laughs) but I couldn't help thinking is this from a dead body and I'd kind of heard stories from my guides on the way up about people that had died and so there was one guy who just in the camp like at base camp had gone to the toilet and got disorientated just fell off the mountain
1: oh my word. so anyway so
3: i've got all this like <laughs> going around in my head and then and then i had the most horrendous stomach cramps that i've ever had just like absolutely searing pain like doubled over but but clinging on for dear life and i was like you know what? Like, I- i'm gonna vomit right now and i've just I've brought got, by got the anxiety be of being no there. no altitude sickness oh no yeah so then i was like violently sick for like a good i don't know hour or something right and then i'd carry on so it's going really <laughs> so well anyway so <laughs> by the time we got down it was i probably had lost about three so <laughs> anyway so it was all good
1: but you raised a bunch of money
3: raised a lot of money and everyone made it. it i mean quite frankly it was remarkable there were 12 of us that went we all made it to the top of the mountain and when we got down um the lady who had sort of organized the trip for us said statistically two of you should be very severely hospitalized right now Whereas we'd all made it, one person did break his ankle in that's two insane. places. So um, was most was
4: mm. most of it walking? Because you talk about the the very final day with this sheer yes. rock face. Was that properly climbing? Yeah, right. that was pro-
3: that was properly kind of scrambling, like gripping onto ice but most of it was walking and the weird thing is you have to go very very slowly so the thing you constantly hear up the mountain is the swahili word for slowly which is poli so poli 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 constantly because actually if you go too quick your brain will explode from the altitude so,
4: <laughs> stunned silence in the
3: Signal
1: studio. Yeah, so that's, um, well, we're glad that you came back yeah. with your I'm, brain I'm in alive. one piece. I'm in, alive. in one piece and, and Incredible. raised a bunch of money. Incredible. Uh, great work. Well, thanks uh, for sharing that with us. And thank you to any of you uh, from the show audience that supported yeah, uh, by donating to Youth of Christ. Uh, we all appreciate it. And Ruth appreciates it too, because otherwise, you know, if her head exploded for no real good reason, that would have been a shame. Okay. <laughs> well, like I said, coming up on the show, we've got plenty of other uh, mind-blowing ideas, but hopefully nothing to do with heads popping off. (laughs)
5: Uh, We're going
1: to be talking about the uh, continuing uh, proposals from uh, Mr. Jeremy Corman around the uh, changes that he wants to see to the licence fee to the BBC and the launch of the British Digital Corporation that he announced this week. We'll also be discussing the uh, ongoing uh, fallout from the the changes that have happened at the senior leadership at Willow Creek Church in the US and how senior pastors are held to a slightly different level of account uh, by the media, uh, particularly the Christian media, in the wake of what's happened there with uh, Bill Hybels and the scandal that has been uh, erupting and evolving over there in Willow Creek. But that's all to come after a few announcements coming up after this.
6: Because life ain't always easy, but
3: they keep holding on. I'm proud of all my friends, because they keep believing that the best is yet to come. And I saw
4: you scorn the good As the enemy of the best I'm
1: Proud of all my friends there From uh, Joshua Luke Smith Who uh, Sam and I went to go see A couple of weeks ago in concert Amazing We did And I'm very proud of Ruth as well Obviously hence why
5: We'll, we'll drop that in <laughs> um,
1: So announcements that are coming up uh, The main thing to tell you about You're not going to be surprised If you've been listening to the show For a long time Is I'm going to tell you about The Church and Media Conference It's our big event of the year And it is happening in just A few weeks time away Held at St Mary's Bryanson Square In London's Marlebone district, it's on the Thursday, the 18th of October, and there is still time to get your tickets. Uh, It's £65 available now to be booked through the MediaNet website. You can just go to uh, themedianet.org/slash-conference to book. And we've got some really exciting people on the lineup during the day. We've got a how-to and why on podcasting with Hussein Kasavani and Justin Briley ex-colleague of uh, Sam's over on. He's still a uh, colleague. Well, he's still a colleague, but not on the Christianity. (laughs) He still sits next to me, I can reveal. He's still there. (laughs) Uh, We've got the uh, Ministry of Comms workshop with Mark Crosby, and we've got an amateur filmmaking course with Susie Atwood, amongst many other things, including panels about women in the media, and uh, we're also looking at the future of technology and how that's going to change media for connecting different communities sponsored by the Church of England digital team. So we've got a full lineup and some very exciting things for you to get involved with. We're also going to have lots of our past speakers back for the the, uh, conference, so you'll be able to kind of mingle with some of the great and good from across the Christian media scene. So if you want to come along, you can still get your tickets. It is on the 18th of October, Thursday the 18th of October, £65
4: tickets on the website, themedianet.org.
3: It's also Sam's birthday on the 18th of October.
4: It is indeed. It is also Sam's so you can birthday. Wish Sam hey, in all birthday. seriousness, I would say just very quickly on that podcasting point, I mean, Justin is a fantastic person to be talking about podcasts. I mean, the way that Unbelievable has grown is incredible. It's so almost unbelievable. It is almost unbelievable. <laughs> so if you have any interest, Podcast, him and obviously Hussein as well. Fantastic people to learn from yeah absolutely and some really lovely
1: other uh, sessions throughout the day as well I- i'm particularly interested for uh, the inside joke on pitching uh, what stand up can teach us about success and confidence in the media with our good friend paul Corenzo. we love paul we, we love, love paul, paul and um yeah i've got an
3: interview with him in my magazine at the moment actually
1: He'd, yes he's in there he's
3: written kids books they're really good yeah
1: he's written Buy some them. great books you can go check those out and <laughs> you can come meet and uh, get all of the information from paul at the conference as well so that's coming up okay we're going to head into the news we We've got a couple of different stories to discuss this month, and first of all, we're going to get kicked off with uh, the story about Jeremy Corbyn and wanting to change the way in which we fund some of the the world's kind of biggest media organisations in the form of the BBC and the whole media industry in the UK by taxing uh, different parts of the industry, uh, particularly big corporations. Sam, you looked at this a little bit. What's your kind of thoughts on his proposal so far? Well,
4: I think it's fascinating that when we look at media regulation in general, uh, isn't it? interesting how, for example, on polling day, if you turn on the BBC or you listen to the radio, you watch TV news, all they're allowed to tell you is people are voting today and you can't say anything else. If you pick up a newspaper, the newspaper will tell you exactly who they think you should be voting for. And so I think when we think of it in that context with the online world, Jeremy Corbyn saying, you know, why don't we tax people like Amazon and Apple and we're not, we're not, yeah, all these kind of big media um, online industries and, you know, give the money to the BBC to kind of help them out. And it's this interesting idea of different me- different mediums, right? So you, we've got broadcast, we've got print, and now we've got online. And what do we do with the online when it comes to regulation? How, how do we cope with that? And I think this is a huge question, and it's interesting to see Jeremy Corbyn trying to provide some possible answers.
1: Yeah, and, and yeah, you know, one of the things that because an interesting kind of circular part of this narrative right is that the idea of taxing the big companies like the Facebooks the Amazons of the world they are increasingly becoming the mediums in which you get your news as well so Mm -hmm. there is this interesting kind of balance between this this constant topic that we've discussed before right around are they publishers are they platforms which is it where do their responsibilities lie and particularly because many of them also have uh you know kind of been not necessarily dodging tax in an illegal sense, but they route their taxes through other places so that they pay minimum tax in the UK. That's where he's kind of, you know, seeing this as being an issue. Ruth, do you think that this is something we should we should be doing?
3: And it's a great idea, because I also think that more and more, the, the dominant way that people watch the BBC is online, isn't it? So it's on these things that have been provided by these huge tech companies. So actually, the tech companies, I, I feel in some ways, slightly owe it to the BBC. I mean, obviously, I'm a little bit biased because I used to work for the BBC. But I just think, actually, no one broadcasts like the BBC. It is impartial. It is, you know, a kind of trusted... There's a reason it's called the auntie. It's like a trusted friend, a trusted kind of older advisor. And I think, actually, I, I know there's no danger of it sort of folding, but, but it wouldn't be too far down the line if it loses all its funding to go that way. And actually, I think that would be a massive travesty. And I think these tech companies have got so much extra money... Yeah. I'm yeah. oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I was, I was agreeing something? with you, Ruth. Okay.
4: Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I was just going to add you know, it's interesting. He said that uh, a few tech giants and unaccountable billionaires will control huge swathes of our public space and debate. And that's why he's saying that intervention is now required, which, you know, is, is, is what you're saying, isn't it? About the, the control that people like Netflix. Google, Facebook hold over us is absolutely massive. I
3: guess the danger is you'd need to make sure that like enough companies were being taxed that the BBC didn't then become like in any way owned or. Uh yeah, like swayed by those people because they're funding it. You'd need yes. to make sure that there was enough people contributing that it that it still remained an impartial And I suppose, that,
1: so the tax is you know, very much looking at the idea of, well, the fact that these big companies provide a lot of infrastructure, but they don't necessarily also provide the kind of un- impartial, unbiased yeah. journalism that the BBC does. So it's trying to kind of prop up that... Journalistic mandate, which I think is a noble one to be going after, mm. but you could also argue that these big tech companies have done an awful lot to build the infrastructure that allows us to even have the iPlayer in the first place, or you know much of the kind of technology that we rely upon for you know kind of broadcast news and various other you know kind of digital platforms. You know they they have invested over invested mm. in the development of those things, um, and yes, they may not be paying for it through taxes in the UK, but they are actually providing us big social utility, which they at the moment we obviously are all charged for by using our eyeballs to pay for it through predominantly through advertising unless you're a Netflix for example which is maybe more subscription based. The other part of the story that I thought was interesting in what he's proposed, this was at the um, Edinburgh uh, Literature Festival, I think, that the uh, announced... TV Festival. Sorry, TV Festival, yeah. you're correct, that, that was uh, was announced this week, was that the idea of this British Digital Broadcasting uh, kind of Corporation, or the BDC, which could work with other institutions uh, to work like a national investment bank or a transformation fund uh, for the media industry, essentially. So creating the, the grounds to have an expanded thing, like uh, expanding out what iPlayer could be um, and giving universal access to other um, content products that otherwise would be hard for you know smaller companies to, to rise up and do and there is this kind of giant that you know David and Goliath kind of uh, struggle that's going on right now is that there is uh, some interesting uh, research that was done earlier this year by the digital catapult looking at you know lots of these AI businesses and lots of these technology driven businesses and to get startups off the ground you need a massive amount of computing power and access which is very hard to afford therefore you can never get off the the ground and so therefore it's always these big big companies that are self-perpetuating but you know the idea that this would perhaps give us a new digital forum I think is is really exciting to you know kind of expand out the the remit and the role of the of the digital ecosystem what type of content do you think we would want to see them coming up with would you want to use a, a British BBC version of Facebook or a BBC version of Twitter in the future? I don't think so.
3: <laughs> I think they'd be silly to recreate something that already exists. I think they'd need to create new platforms, new elements. New and I guess you, you kind of can't know what that is until until there's a need for it.
1: That's very true. But I think there is this kind of opportunity to create some of these kind of rival platforms that maybe have this kind of fair and unbiased kind of platform, you know, baked into them, right? Is that mm. because the the very nature of what Twitter and Facebook say is that, well... They they go beyond even saying we're impartial. They say we've got nothing to do with the content. The content's not ours. Uh, we just provide the space. Whereas yeah. uh, you know, kind of, so is there a, maybe a, more of a mandate for the BBC to come back in and say, well, actually, no, we do provide the, the platform and we do help moderate and mediate the space. Which obviously would be a massive technical undertaking to be able to even yeah, do that. I was going
3: to say that's going to be a huge headache. <laughs> I
4: do I do question the the logic and the wisdom in the BBC selling off some of its programs to Netflix like they've done in in the past. You know, are, are they undermining their own iPlayer? by giving their content away to another company to make money off
3: oh, of it. Oh, they give it... So, because I used to work... Before I worked at the BBC, I worked at BBC Worldwide and we used to sell BBC programmes to other channels in different countries. And I, I see it as an equivalent thing, actually. So I think it's just another platform, another way of getting more eyeballs on it.
1: Yeah, so the, you are, though, propping up the kind of... The,
3: the, the rivals. The
1: rivals in a yeah. different way, right? So, you know, whether or not iPlayer you know, can continue to have the kind of bibles and time and attention mm. and particularly the investment but
3: but in the same way that you know if you were selling it to a, an Irish channel that was nothing to do with the BBC that would effectively be a rival wouldn't it
4: it's funny how you know I will find myself watching a lot of Netflix and checking iPlayer less and less. <laughs> and mentally, I'm thinking, well, I'm paying for for Netflix. And that's what is it, seven ninety nine a month? You know, I need to use this. Mm. <laughs> I probably forgot. Actually, I do pay a license fee as well. So technically, I'm paying for I'm paying for iPlayer. Yeah. Technically, as, mu- as much as I am for Netflix, and but I think mentally, that, I think I'm paying for Netflix and not iPlayer. And maybe that is the
1: the thing that he's getting at here is actually that you know pivoting the idea of what a license fee is versus a subscription fee is maybe just a matter of linguistics but ultimately it's the same thing As one, uh, the, the the key difference though is that one is mandated in law and so that's the real question here is that you know, this essentially would be a new tax that's mandated in law it wouldn't be a tax on us, the consumer of the content it'd be a tax on the big technology companies that prop up the internet in the yeah. very first
4: place. I do question how on earth you can actually Force these companies to pay that kind of money when they're global companies, and you're trying to just tax what the UK arm of them? Yeah. Well, we have
1: began to see this happening, you know, in the wake of the GDPR announcements. Obviously, Google have just been slapped by one of the big taxes in terms of the changes in that um, the anti competition that they were hit by the European Commission around the uh, use of bundling all of their apps into their hardware services, and they, you know that whole uh, package of different legislation that's come out there has uh, began to at least show that you can impose these big taxes on these mm. companies but you're absolutely right it's so which part of these companies are you going to yeah. go after and whether or not they will be willing to comply for the access to the UK market particularly oh, yeah. in the wake of Brexit
4: I found it very odd post GDPR that I can't access some American sites because they basically said if you're in the UK we're not totally sure Europe we're not totally sure about the GDPR laws we're just going to not let you come on the website there's a couple of new sites like that that don't actually let you access it from the UK anymore that's interesting.
3: Yeah, I haven't nice, seen that, nice, that,
4: Well, if you've
1: seen more of this, so you're worried about the British Digital Corporation coming in, uh, or you think that that's a good idea, we'd love you to get your opinions. We're going to be starting this as a conversation over on Twitter. So if you want to go and engage in that, please go drop us your comments. Use hashtag signal and reply to at the media net on Twitter, and we will get your thoughts and feelings all about that.
5: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
1: Okay, the next story that we're going to look at is this continuing uh, fallout from the treatment of Bill Hybels, the senior pastor of Willow Creek Church in the US, who stood down this April following a number of accusations from members of his team and associated members of the congregation there at Willow Creek uh, following some accusations of sexual misconduct. This week, we saw the... uh a couple of senior members of the uh, team at uh, Willow Creek also stand down and the announcement that they are going to be overturning their entire management team at the, the most highest levels of the church. And of course, you know this is both a, a hugely sad story that this has happened, but also a really interesting uh, point for Christian media dialogue at the moment around the account that we hold some of these Christian leaders to. We've obviously seen this come up a couple of times in recent history with a number of others who have been implicated in these types of scandals. We wanted to open up the question to you guys. Was, you know, do we hold these guys to the and different standard? Should we hold them to a different standard because they're Christians and because they're Christian leaders versus any other public figure that we should be well, holding them to? I
3: mean, there's a biblical mandate for, isn't it? It's in your your book actually, the Book of James. I think it's chapter three that says that those who teach others should be held to a higher. Will be judged. Yeah, more will harshly. be judged more harshly. Mm. So I think there is a biblical mandate to, um yeah, to hold them more accountable because. Whether whether rightly or wrongly, you do look to your leaders as an example, and that doesn't mean that they need to be perfect, but but actually there is more expected of them.
4: I I think it's as well um, a case of... For us, on a moral level as Christians, we have different standards to what the world would have as legal Mm -hmm. standards. Now, sometimes there's crossover, Okay, So, you know, on a moral level, rape is wrong. And on a legal level, rape is wrong. But actually, some of the accusations about Bill Hybels, for example, one of them was, uh, the the phrase that was used was a lingering hug. Now, that's not (laughs) going to go through the court system. But actually, if you're making a woman feel uncomfortable as a Christian leader and you're deliberately doing that, then that is morally wrong. Mm. My concern with all this, with Bill Hybels, that at least with the first set of allegations that came out, there was literally everything from a lingering hug to a full-blown affair mm. being alleged by different women. And I think we have to be very, very careful to talk about well, what allegations specifically are we talking about. Because don't get me wrong, it's all wrong, it's all sin. But I, I think you know there are clearly different levels of how serious some of this sexual sin is. Um, and it seems, it seems to me, unlikely. That any of the allegations about Bill Hybels are going to go through the American court system. Now, I might be proved wrong on that, but but from what I can tell, I. I- I doubt. I doubt that this will go through the American courts. And so now we have this question: of Well, what counts as justice? Yes, exactly. Um, how do we arrive at that point as a Christian church, either way on this? How do we now ascertain whether he's guilty or not? Yeah,
1: and also is the the trial by media that's going on as well, right? So the uh, you know kind of uh, obvious uh, outrage that this could have happened, particularly on the more serious end of the things that have been alleged. You know, they are now essentially you know whether or not they are ever true or not, and whether or not we can ever get to the bottom of what's true and what wasn't in that situation. This side of heaven is hard one to even kind of get into but if they are... Ever proven to be untrue, the the things that have now been placed upon him in terms of his reputation, and the, and also the reputation of the wider church mm-hmm. here, and the, the suffering that Willow Creek as a whole family will now suffer, is a really interesting one. It's you know, well, we obviously working in the media, and particularly you guys working in Christian media, how do you handle some of these stories when you guys are you know, kind of covering them? Are you sensitive to the fact that actually by writing something about it, you actually amplify the potential impact that it has on those
4: people's lives? It's very hard because we can't... No journalist can pick and choose. And I think some people have a perception of Christian media that we should, you know... But actually, I don't think this perception exists too much anymore. But there has in the past been this idea, oh, you're a Christian, you shouldn't be reporting bad news about other Christians. Well, actually, you know, if if there's reason to believe that uh, this could be true then I think we have a duty to report it, and indeed we have uh, reported it. Um, I I think there's a place for us to try and report the story in a helpful way that encourages people to ask questions about accountability. but yeah, we can't we can't ignore it.
3: I also think you just got to be careful about language as well, haven't you? Because you don't want to slip into libel. You know, you need to be using words like alleged and things like that. You just need to be really careful in the way that you're doing it. But also, I think there is, like Sam says, I think there's an opportunity to editorialise and to sort of to step back and say look, none of us are perfect. Is there anything that you can be doing to make sure that you are kind of watertighting? That's not a verb, but you know, making making your leadership watertight. How are you protecting your marriage? How are you protecting your relationships with your? Friends? How are you protecting whatever? Mm. And actually, I think that some of these things, un- unfortunately, more commonly, um, are a bit of a wake-up call. And yeah. I think that we need we need a wake-up call, and we don't need things like that in order for it to be a wake-up yeah. call. But let's let's kind of try and. It, turn seemed, them into it seems it seems to
4: me as well. A lot of Christians are just in shock when things like this happen, which obviously is understandable. But it's like we have to keep relearning and rediscovering yeah. that you can have a very successful ministry, you can accomplish a lot of wonderful things for God, and yet you can. And I'm not saying he necessarily is, but. It, it, it's also possible to be guilty of some terrible terrible things and it's it's a hard thing we kind of know this in in theory don't we we know that in theory you can do good things and yet you can have single life because look at the bible and look at church history (laughs) look at martin luther's anti-semitism for example and yet when it happens in our current climate or with a church that we personally look up to and respect we kind of have to learn that lesson all over again Uh, again this is assuming that he is guilty he may not be he's still denying all the allegations yes exactly I think that yeah, I
1: spend a lot of time with um, people in the technology industry, and we've obviously seen this whole uh, kind of you know media movement and sexual misconduct scandals sweep through both obviously originally entertainment, then technology, and it's uh, you know, rears its head again here in the church. And the thing that I've witnessed a lot that in the tech scene particularly, and also in the media, is that because of the the level of profile that these stories are now getting, that the very um, whether or not any of them are ever be able to be actually held up in court or they're proven to be true or false, that it creates it's a somewhat culture of fear actually within the companies of like people being worried about showing or expressing levels of, um, particularly for men, levels of, uh, you know, kind of attention or um, undue attention to female colleagues or actually to any colleagues in, in many cases. And you do worry, though, that in the church, which is a place where it is supposed to be a place of care and love and attention to one another, and where sometimes the only thing to do is put an arm around someone and say it's going to be okay, particularly in ministry scenarios, you know, do you think that this is going to create some Difficulties. See, that's
3: where I think guidelines are really important, particularly. I mean, my background's youth work, so you know, we've always had very strict guidelines, uh, understandably so, because children are involved. But something like you know, no youth worker would ever dream of being one to one with a member of the opposite sex in a place that wasn't f- surrounded by people. That's just common sense. And I think there are things that you can put into place like that. So, of course, comfort a member of the opposite sex, but do that in an environment where lots of people are around, and so you are fully accountable to all the people that are watching you and therefore if any allegations come you have got though all those people to witness that that actually that clearly nothing yeah. happened
4: yeah and i also i can't help but think of the billy graham rule again yes. you know that all kicked off didn't it when mike pence said that he followed it and he got a lot of pushback not just from non-christians some christians are really offended at that because they said you know this kind of makes women out to be jezebels, jezebels. <laughs> and you know i, I can understand where that point of view is coming from but for me just speaking personally as a man I completely get it I completely get why you would say actually for me as a church leader I'm not going to meet alone with a woman in my office um, because you know, not because I think every woman out there is trying to get me and falsely accuse me but because I want to protect myself from a scandal like again if we go back to the Bill Hybels example if we assume he's innocent of this well actually if you follow the Billy Graham rule these allegations wouldn't be able to be made right
3: and it's the heart behind it isn't it you know you might not you might not go as far as the Billy Graham rule but actually the principle behind it is I want to safeguard my marriage or you know I want to safeguard the women in my church here's how I'm going to do it and it will I think it will look different for different people and you know if you are an incredibly tangible person you probably need to be more aware of that and more careful of the boundaries that you put in place.
1: Within this specific example I'm just reporting here from uh, the, the story that Christian, uh, Christianity Today wrote about in the US this week and uh, you yeah, know just to kind of bring up a rival and really rile uh, Sam about <laughs> I it. I love but, Christianity Today. Uh, <laughs> I Read
4: them every month. I think they do wonderful work. But yes, you should be reading it from Premiere, yeah, not from okay. the But you know,
1: um, just you know, from their reporting. But you know, a developing story that there's about eight or nine articles about this story since it started um, back in around about March time. There's a couple, you know, throughout April, now a number of them in August. It does, cont- mm. you know, as these stories yeah. roll out, the question there about well, if until something has been proven, is it prudent to keep writing about it? I think is the other question for us as kind of working in the kind of media and journalism industry is like well actually you know, okay these statements have been made they were made for the purpose predominantly of the congregation that was directly affected by this yes of course he has a public persona and therefore many you know, millions of people have bought his books including myself over the years and have derived massive amounts of value from them so there is you could argue a public interest
4: so are you saying so? It, because this first started in what March, April time when the March, first, yeah. first women came forward But so we're now talking about this again because more women came forward last month are you saying James that When the second time round happened, you question whether that needs to be reported.
1: No, well, actually, I mean, this isn't that the more people have come forward with accusations. It's more that they are uh, the members of the Willow Creek team are now apologising and standing down to you know kind of rejuvenate the board and and the management there. But it obviously surfaces the original story back to the top, and that reporting is going to continue to self perpetuate. It you know kind of this whether or not again it's proven or not, and we all know that we don't spend enough time, you know, particularly readers of these stories don't necessarily always spend enough time reading everything that's gone before them. All that. Are now going to hear is the connection between that name and that issue, and that's it forever. So, you know, whether or not it's ever kind of proven to be innocent or guilty, it does kind of leave you wondering whether or not you know this kind of reporting of every small uh, change and moment within the story is necessarily helpful. It's just a question for you guys, Mm. and whether or not you know, do you see that there's a role to uh, kind of question that in in this space?
4: Yeah, I I don't know. I think I think it, it all has to be reported. I'm afraid I do believe it has to be reported blow by blow as it happens um the latest thing that's happened as you say with the with the effectively the entire board leadership team resigning um i think the problem with this story is uh, my my feeling is when the news first broke in march there were a number of women who came forward, but, but some Christians felt like there was still reason to, to doubt all of this. I think, you know, you wait six months and as I say, more women came forward last month. And now you have the entire leadership team of a church resigning, saying we should have believed the women. I'm afraid that as this story progresses, I think the reasons to believe that Bill Hybels is innocent for me are diminishing. Uh, that's just me on a personal level. I think as time has gone on, I think the case against Hybels has started to really stack up and get more and more serious as time has gone on. Um, so I think in that sense, it has been relevant to, to report this story. That All that said on a personal level I think we have to be really careful um, because you know they're there but for the grace of God go we right and we can't be reporting the story in a way that's just throwing stones um, we, have to, we have to treat it sensitively, it's not an easy thing to talk about Well it's a very difficult topic and obviously we will continue to uh, look at it as and when it
1: becomes relevant for us here as well to do so but for now we'll leave it there on, on that topic. In a moment we're going to come back to you uh, with Mark Warburton's interview talking about the uh, upcoming things of Songs of Praise but before before we end the show we've also got some great recommendations i'm going to ask the team to do something slightly unconventional now which is to tease what it is that they're recommending with uh, just one example so ruth you've got a, a podcast recommendation for us to tell us more about later what is it for now
3: it's called long form
1: long form so if you're interested in things that have long form then you might want to come back after Mark's interview and you'll hear more about the recommendations coming up at the end of the show but for now I'm going to hand over to well myself as I interviewed Mark earlier this week to talk about the uh, role that he has played in the life of Songs of Praise obviously for those listeners perhaps outside of the UK that we know there's a number of you from the US and other places around the world that listen to the show you may not be as familiar with Songs of Praise but for those in the UK it's pretty hard to have ever missed it. Hmm. Songs of Praise has been a store on our television screens for nearly 30 years on Sunday nights playing out worship and praise music over that many decades and mark has been with the show for over 20 of those years helping to craft uh, the way in which many of us have encountered sunday worship uh, throughout the weeks and months that, that have gone by so here is my interview with mark Walburton from songs of praise
2: I got a job as a church administrator, just doing uh, just just doing the, just full on 100% admin, management, organisation. And a year after that, the BBC in Manchester um, advertised, and I don't think they've did it before or done it since. They advertised in the church press for production assistants in their radio worship department. So I applied for one of those jobs. Long story short, got one of those jobs, and uh, yeah, so became a production assistant making you know, such so the Radio Four Daily Service, Radio Four Sunday Worship um the full range really Coral even sort of radio 3 and uh good day uh, which is still running on radio too um from there i um I, I then started to indulge my passion for sort of audio editing and sound recording and um, then i i just got itchy feet and decided i quite fancied tv and when the time was right uh managed to get a researcher role in songs of praise and because it was in the bbc uh, i was able to do lots of attachments um so i went to work on places like uh, the one show blue peter news round religious documentaries uh, but songs of praise is the place that kind of like the bungee straps always pulled me back there and um so that's where i've generally stayed and then um just over a year ago that's tender and it was won by um two indies together um i then moved with it to the new uh, operation so I'm now working with them under new management, as it were.
1: And so since moving out into the, the indie space, yeah, what would you kind of characterise as some of the, the key differences now that you're not you know, kind of within the main BBC
2: unit? It's a bit like any large organisation, you know, like the NHS or, or, or government or anything else. It's, it's just a huge operation. And, and for, for a big organisation to work... Effectively, it needs to have a lot of framework—not uh, badly, but a degree of uniformity and and, and single message where possible. The, the independent sector. My experience of it so far, and I'm still relatively new to it, only having been there for a year after over 20 years in the general industry. Um, the the there are fewer management lines, so you can get decisions quicker. And there, I say there's there's probably fewer maybes as well. I think the BBC can be a very maybe place. People sort of hedging their bets, just looking over their shoulder, wondering what thing is right what thing is wrong Uh, but like i say i'm new to it um and uh so far it's going well i'm enjoying it
1: so maybe talk more then around how it's changed not just between being independent and being within the bbc but actually songs of praise itself the role it has in the schedule and the the way in which it is produced has changed quite significantly in that time what are some of the biggest changes that you've experienced during your time with the program
2: well, yes, Songs of Praise has been going now for, well, since 1961, so it's o- over 55 years. It's been going, and when it first started, its aim was to simply be a way of celebrating uh, hymn singing, really. Um, and in that sense, the overall values of that have, have not changed at all. It's still a, a musical show that celebrates the diversity of Christian faith around the UK. Um, uh, when I first when I first joined. The format was was pretty fixed in that you had it was one program from one place uh, the hymns would come from one church and and there would be interviews and stories and testimonies um based around that local area so you'd have a show from ipswich or exeter or Aberystwyth. Uh, probably about six or seven years ago um it was it was felt that um it, it needed to be kind of zhuzhed up a bit and um yeah, in 2014 we undertook quite a big uh, revamp of it, so that the hymns no longer came from one particular church, but there was a variety of them, uh, both in in geography and in musical style. Um, and then, likewise, the stories, the interviews would come from all around the country, um, and that that worked reasonably well. Um, but then, since moving to Avantia Nine Lives," we've um, we've taken a fresh look at that, along with the BBC Commissioner, and we've we've tried to consolidate uh, the best bits of that format, but also just introduce a bit of freshness. So, Songs of Praise now, overall, uh, the the hymns still come from around the country, from um, a variety of churches with a variety of musical setups. But I would say now there is a stronger sense of theme or thread or story that runs through the entire program. Um, so there, mm. there might be a, an issue like a, a, a subject like forgiveness or peace or something I would say in the last year or so it has gone back to I would say that the speech elements have gone back to be more about sort of personal testimony personal story and and with Christian the Christian faith right at the heart of it with people sort of expressing how the Christian faith has inspired and sustained them through through good bad times
1: when, when you think about that balance between the traditional and the modern between you know the different parts of the church What's that discussion like in the production process of, of making the show? How do you do do you find that there has to be a balance? Are you thinking about balance?
2: Oh absolutely, yes. I mean Songs of Praise is um, is part of, if you like, the BBC One family. It's a BBC one show. Shows like an Antiques Roadshow or Country File. Um, or or even pointless, or anything that's on BBC One around that same sort of time, it's got to feel BBC One, um, whilst at the same time acknowledging its its niche, its specialism, which is the Christian faith, Christianity. Um, So we want it to be kind of um, celebratory, we want it to always be inspiring and uplifting. But in terms of that balance, um, we really want to find ways which has to be said no single church denomination has ever done of somehow bringing all Christians together um, or helping all Christians to feel as if they can see themselves on screen in some way from week to week so we try to have a balance of uh, traditional and contemporary uh, hymns and songs and gospel songs Uh, we try to reflect uh, the wide range of denominations Uh, for some denominations that's that's easier than for others. And and in terms of the kind of stories that we tell, we we try and make sure that there is a a good degree of diversity uh, in all senses of the word. Um, So that, yeah, people who are watching, in fact, whether Christians or not, somehow can see themselves or sense themselves reflected in the programme.
1: Of course, I would say that Songs of Praise probably is still the most overtly Christian programme in the schedule throughout the week. Um, the most overtly focused on worship, certainly in the television schedule anyway. But if you look at it as a percentage of the overall output of BBC One, for example, that you could question in a multicultural modern Britain why is there not something similar for the Muslim faith or of no faith at all? Do we see the pressure to produce something like that? And how do you find the, the continuing role of the show within that output?
2: Well, I think to a degree, um, the... It's it's songs of praise is one of those programmes which you know it's a, it's a bit it's a bit like Blue Peter or uh, other historical shows which um, which were commissioned in a different age but which uh, because of their popularity and because of their almost timelessness uh, they've sort of they sort of survive they still cut through now obviously there, some people would debate whether there is still a role for a programme like songs of praise um, that's not really my uh, area for for having too much of an opinion i i at the moment i, I make the show and i work on it and i do the best i can to to inspire the audience yeah i think while we while the the program is there we um we we do our best to to play our part in reflecting that sector of society that um that, that is christian that does want to be uh inspired and uplifted each week um now we know that our um songs of praise our our general audience is is probably older um we know that uh, it's it's a program that sort of brings brings a, a degree of uh, comfort in a in a in a reminiscing kind of way, um, uh, in a nostalgic kind of way for many. But we also want to reflect. That, you know, there's there's a, there's a huge. Community of of contemporary Christians like last week I was at New Wine for example with 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 ten thousand other Christians who, who are really passionate about living out their faith and worshiping and so we want to include people like that we want to include uh, the fact that there is a huge um, gospel scene in the UK um, and and yeah so so it's it's a it is a balancing act and um, but I think that um, whilst the BBC in, in its, in, at, at the highest level is is committed to religion and is committed to faith programming songs of praise's role is to is to be that christian uh christian voice if you like in in the broadcasting space
1: obviously you know, working on a program like this over that l- length of period of time it must have taught you a few things uh, what are some of the lessons that you've taken away from working on the show
2: over over that period I, th- I think one of the biggest ones is just, uh, and this sounds a bit weird when we're talking about a, a music-based program, but actually the power of storytelling, the power of somebody, an individual uh, or a couple of people or a family, uh, telling their story of what's happened to them. And in the cons- Songs of Praise context, uh, how their Christian faith has, has played a part in that has been a central part. Um, you know, television, films, movies, radio, podcasts, so much of that kind of uh, so much of the, the creative arts is based around storytelling and um songs of praise and the programs i've worked on are in a sense no different um so that's that's one lesson i've learned i think that um never underestimate the, the power of just a simple story of somebody being able to say you know what happened uh, how my faith played a part and, and and how i now feel now looking back on that
1: Thanks there to Mark Warburton from Songs of Praise and if you want to find out more about him and the show you can do that by contacting him over on Twitter as he just told you. Okay, over to talk about our recommendations the first of which Ruth teased us with earlier so let's return to that one. Ruth, uh, what's your recommendation for this month?
3: So there's a podcast called Long Form and I actually found it by, there was a website that had like the top 20 podcasts of 2018 which is ironic because it started I don't know, years ago like 2011 or something Um, but it interviews the <laughs> Long form non fiction writers. So, some of those are authors, um, a lot of them are journalists, a lot of them are sort of editorial magazine writers. So, it's really, really interesting. And Sam and I were discussing it earlier, and actually, a lot of the journalists I've never heard of, um, but they've got incredibly interesting jobs. And I quite like the fact that I've not heard of them because I'm not drawn to them because they're big names, I'm drawn to them because of their jobs. And so, there will obviously be some that are of more interest to you know, if you work in a particular area, you'll probably be more interested in. in so, I heard an amazing interview with a girl who's the celebrity interviewer for GQ magazine just such an interesting story of how she got into journalism how she sort of contacts the celebrities how how she gets the best out of them and in, in situations so yeah really good yeah
1: here's a little blast of that episode that Ruth was talking about the long-form podcast by Rachel Kudzi Godsan. I think I'm saying that right of, of the America's terrorists and the making of Dylan Roof and this was for her piece for GQ
6: we didn't know that Dylan Roof was threatening his Jewish lawyer to stab him with a pencil if he entered any psychological information, okay? I saw the way that the 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 guys who were watching Dylan were watching him really hard, but I just thought they were looking at him cuz he's like a, you know, like he's a murderer, he's a mass murderer, but you know, we didn't know this stuff. When I went to knock on Dylan Roof's dad's door, I felt literally like I was just doing my job. Now, I think it was a, a couple of weeks ago when we were fact-checking the piece. I finally was reading unsealed documents again, and I found that, you know, this is the guy who allegedly believed that, like, a race war is coming, the dad. This is the guy who has, like, a cachet of guns. This is a guy who had Dylan singing inward songs and dancing around, mocking black people. So, if I had He's no- the guy
0: who bought him the gun. And
6: he's the guy who bought him the gun.
1: There you go, just a short blast of the long form podcast. Really interesting long interviews with some amazing journalists actually mm-hmm. from all sorts of different places. Uh, what, have you listened to many of these? Like what was your other kind so of So I thoughts? listen to
3: like <laughs> But four or five back-to-back last night, just really different, really interesting. I went right back to the beginning of the catalogue and then I went to some more recent. Really interesting.
1: Yeah, there's over 300 episodes, so yeah. you've got plenty to go <laughs> and choose from, including uh, different folks from uh, the New York Magazine, the New York Times Magazine as well. Uh, many of them both American, but also others from uh, the international uh, pieces as well. Uh, so yeah, OK, that's the long form podcast. If you want to check that out, it's longform.org slash podcast. You can go find that out there and obviously find it in all good places to get your podcast which is probably where you're listening to this in now if you're listening to Signal in a podcast app now's the time to think about going and doing something very special which is going and leaving us a review and a rating you can do that if you're listening in the iTunes podcast app or uh, Apple podcast app nowadays Uh, go leave us a review we'd love five stars I mean you know I think I'm (laughs) honest to say that we'd love five stars Um, so if you want to support the show it's a great way to do that and it really helps the podcast get seen by other people and we would love it
4: if you would do that Right, over to Sam for Sam's recommendation of the month. Well, wow. my recommendation is a novel aimed at young adults and it's called The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. This novel has been massively successful. Number one in the UK, number one in the US. It's being made into a film. I think the film is coming out in October, very, very soon. And it's really based on Black Lives Matter. Uh, so it's set in the US. Young black girl is the is the main character and she basically um, witnesses a, a cop, uh, shooting her friend, and um, and it's kind of how that case then developed in America, and you know it's it's set in a uh, you know in in a kind of I don't know what the American equivalent would be of. of social housing effectively you know in, in a very rough rough part of a of a city uh, yeah it's just a fantastic fantastic novel so interestingly angie thomas is a christian herself in the back of a book she mentions in the thank you section you want to acknowledge and thank my lord and savior jesus christ i mean the book actually does have quite a lot of swearing bad language in it which i was a little bit su- surprised by but i guess i mean ruth can help me out here but that's what teenagers read these days it's real and if life, it's, uh, though, isn't it's it? real you life couldn't, you
3: couldn't be talking about that sort of environment and True. and have them Using language that they wouldn't use Because it wouldn't feel natural Yes
4: I guess I I just thought the the amount of it was was weird Because I'm sure when I was growing up When I'd read young adult stuff like the content was deliberately not what you'd read and depends in an adult what you book. read in Sam. Maybe. Yeah. Alright. Fair enough. So <laughs> it's a it's a really great book, really superb novel, really about Black Lives Matter, done in novel form. Gonna be it's gonna be a huge film when it comes out, so I recommend checking out the book before the film arrives. It's The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. Well to give you a little bit of a teaser, here is a
1: blast of the trailer for The Hate You Give. It's coming out this October twenty eighteen. Maybe go and read the book before you get there, but here's a little blast of the trailer for The Hate You Give.
2: Okay, correct.
6: Man, you coming at me for my music, but you listen to this old stuff. Old stuff? What? You better get up
4: out of here with all that
3: pocket, of the truth. Well, I got a boyfriend. Yeah,
4: I heard, but it's all good. Really? We've been together our whole life, star. We got time.
3: My name is Star. Two R's. Daddy named me that. Garden Heights. Mama and Daddy says our life is here, because our people are here.
1: There you go, The Hate You Give, uh, available to uh, watch in theatres coming in October this year. Uh, It should be out on October the 19th, uh, starring uh, a really actually quite star-studded cast as well. And, uh, you know, based on the book uh, The Hate You Give, so go check that out as well. My recommendation for this month is a Netflix show, actually. It's a documentary that has been brought back after a uh, secondary... uh, event happening in the story of the documentary. It's very difficult to talk about this one because I can't talk about it without giving away a lot of what happens. But let me at least give you the premise. A uh, man is a uh, finds his wife sadly uh, dead at the bottom of the stairs uh, one evening and as a result is uh, then accused of her murder for potentially pushing her down those stairs and a number of events then begin to unfold from there. But what's really interesting is that the story is told over a very long period of time following the case from the very beginning to the very end. The The documentary itself is called The Staircase and was originally re- released as a documentary film in the mid-2000s uh, to uh, you know, a lot of controversy actually around whether or not they were editorialising and editing the decision of the jury during the case and during the trial and has since come back. As a Netflix show in a serialized documentary, it's a 13-part documentary which um, is like probably the longest one of these things that I've ever watched. But it kind of follows in the similar vein to the Amanda Knox documentary and a number of others um, that have happened recently around different, you know, kind of uh, real-life murder cases. Uh, but thoroughly recommend it. So it's the staircase on Netflix. Are you guys into watching documentaries? Do you watch oh, a lot of Oh, 100%.
4: percent. Okay. I'm currently watching the one about the New York Times. Yep. Uh, which is a bit old now. But it's absolutely superb, you know, about Donald Trump and the New York Times. Uh, Yeah, they sort of went into the New York Times and filmed it all, and it's brilliant. And Ruth, are you a documentary person?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's funny. <laughs> People assume that because I used to work in TV that I've got a highbrow. Uh, I mean, I do watch documentaries. It's Gossip was, Girl, isn't it? Let's it's, be honest. Gossip it's Gossip Girl. Gossip girl, girl and chick flicks. So I just I want to know how something <laughs> ends in the first five minutes of the film.
1: <laughs> okay. In that case, don't watch this. Um, but yeah, 13 episodes of doing that is uh, definitely a uh, rather l- <laughs> rather large commitment, but I, uh, I recommend it. So The Staircase on Netflix, uh, I would recommend that very highly well that brings us to the end of this month's episode the August summary edition the end of summer is kind of coming I can feel the, the winter closing in us Game of Thrones returning to the television at some point well <laughs> not till 2019 sadly um, but at least it's on its way but yeah we can definitely feel the cold Sam shaking his head he doesn't I just, like Game I of Thrones do not like it one bit sorry sorry yeah. to be uh, that uh, guy summer, in the corner okay. I'm really <laughs> sorry please go chastise at Sam Hales on Twitter you can go find <laughs> him to give him your feedback uh, but for now until we see you next month in the last episode before the church and media conference in september uh, we will be back for before the show to kind of give you all of the the things that are coming to close out today's show however it's good to close it with a little moment of prayer and that's what we're going to do our previous month's guest liz clutterbuck recorded a great prayer for the media for us and so we're going to close the show today with that so we thank you very much i've been your host james polter i'm ruth And I am Sam. (laughs) Okay, and they are are your other co-hosts of Signal from The MediaNet. And if you would like to get in touch with the show, you can do that. Remember to let us know all your thoughts and views on today's show by going to themedianet.org, and you can find us on Twitter and Facebook as well. For now, let's close out the show with Liz Clutterbuck. Until next time, see you soon.
6: So Lord God, we thank you for all those who have the gift of communication and have a role in sharing what's going on in the world with others. We pray especially at this time for those who are in the media in dangerous places, who seek to share the truth no matter what the cost. We pray for truth to win overall. And ask that these prophetic voices might be heard in your world. In your name, amen. Hold up. What was that?